Hello, my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, are you ready to laugh? Because we're going to laugh talking about Stephen Chow. Who is Stephen Chow? Stephen Chow is the Jim Carrey of Hong Kong. <laughs> if Jim Carrey's career didn't stall after about five movies. And he was also forced to make hundreds of films, usually under mafia involvement. In Stephen Chow's case, The Triads. Okay. And Stephen Chow, you may know him from films like Shaolin Soccer, Kung Fu Hustle, maybe CJ7, and I think that's pretty much it as far as North American penetration goes. And The Tricky Master. Oh yeah, oh the classic Tricky Master. Or you may know him uh, from The Mermaid, which until recently was China's highest grossing film of all time. But he did not star in that one, he directed it. Mm -hmm. He actually hasn't starred in a movie in almost a decade, if not more than that. So Stephen Chow was in the 90s the biggest draw at the Hong Kong box office, more so even than Jackie Chan. Mm -hmm. Jackie Chan had more prestigious films. He had bigger budget films. His movies were bigger events. But Stephen Chow just was churning out movies over and over again. Every one of them, without exception, was a blockbuster. He's also somebody who, when Western cult circles were discovering Hong Kong cinema, Stephen Chow was not one of the people they were discovering because he was regarded as very colloquial, very Hong Kong specific. I think I came a little bit later than the 90s wave of Hong Kong cult appreciation mm -hmm. because one of the first Hong Kong movies that I saw when I first started going to DVD stores was Shaolin Soccer. Mm -hmm. It's the first one that I bought. And I remember I was looking for it. It cost a ridiculous amount of money, probably something like $35. And I treasured that DVD. Mm. Like there was an error that would happen uh, when I would play it and I would put it in slow motion just so that little error would disappear. <laughs> and I think that Shaolin Soccer is one of those amazing movies that is a perfect introduction to Hong Kong as a genre yeah. in the broadest of terms, in the sense that like the craziness they do, their comedic sensibilities, and their leading men and people like Stephen Chow. And it's very infused with all the lore of Hong Kong cinema history. Like it's got a Bruce Lee character. Mm -hmm. It's got like Kung Fu, it's got wire work. Mm -hmm. It's got all the things that people would associate with Hong Kong going forward. Even though that, while Shaolin Soccer was a huge hit in Hong Kong, I believe Miramax bought it and sat on it for like years and years and years. Well, I remember seeing a trailer for Shaolin Soccer at a movie theater. Mm -hmm. I went to see Spy Kids 3D. <laughs> And I saw that one as well, I believe for my birthday. I was, I was much too old. <laughs> I was a sucker for 3D movies at that age. And uh, there was a trailer for Shaolin Soccer, but it was going to be a dubbed version that was like 30 minutes shorter than the Hong Kong version. And I think somebody raised hell about it. And it just sat on the shelf for years until it got a cursory theatrical distribution and then was released on DVD. For a long time, there were so many talks it was going to be a big release that Stephen Chow was going to dub his own voice Jackie Chan style mm. in the English version. Mm. And then I don't know what happened. Maybe they did some test screenings and didn't work out as well as they expected. And then it just kind of got dumped. There was definitely an attempt to make Stephen Chow a thing in North America. Kung Fu Hustle, which for a time was the most popular movie of all time in Hong Kong, uh, got a wide theatrical release here. But it was one of the last of the Hong Kong movies to get a wide theatrical release. I saw Kung Fu Hustle in theaters with my dad. So it was in every theater then yeah. if I was able to see it in Ottawa while I was living there. And in fact, after that, Stephen Chow, was offered the Green Hornet movie to, yes, to direct. That's true. But, but let's get let's get to that in a bit. Let's start at the beginning. Why is Stephen Chow funny? Because and I'm asking this because you're somebody who you told me you've seen almost all his movies. Yes. 
when I was getting into Hong Kong cinema in, you know, in my teenage years, the comedies seemed very inaccessible to me. Yeah, well, they're very foreign yeah. to North American viewers. And in particular, Stephen Chow had a style of comedy called Mo Lai Tao, mm-hmm. which translates more or less into makes no sense. Very heavy on puns and anachronisms and sort of like local references. Yeah, a way that I would describe it is it's like Zucker Brothers style humor, like airplane or stuff like Mm -hmm. that, where anything goes. But it tends to rely a lot on Cantonese wordplay. So I always regarded Stephen Chow as kind of, he's not for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... Even seeing some of his movies, because I liked Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle enough to inevitably like go into the back catalog, he was an acquired taste for me mm-hmm. because those those two movies were made with a global audience in mind. You know, yeah. If you read a book like um, David Bordwell's Planet Hong Kong, he talks about Stephen Chow quite a bit in it, mm-hmm. and the way that they used to make movies in the '90s, which was just churn them out as quickly as possible. They open at midnight. That's like the first preview screening, mm-hmm. and they play for a week or two, and then they close. Mm-hmm. Now, if we're gonna go way back to how Stephen Chow got started, he did get started as a TV show host you'll read that in every one of his biographies for a show called space shuttle 430 Mm -hmm. and i found clips of it online it's not as funny as i was hoping it would be or as nonsensical as the style would become but from that role he actually became more of a real actor he actually got nominated for golden horse award which is kind of like the uh, hong kong oscars Mm -hmm. for a best supporting actor in final justice which is a completely straight role for him Mm -hmm. and he did that for a long time he was even in a john woo movie just Heroes, Mm. one of John Woo's more forgotten films because it was mostly done as a uh, fundraiser to raise money for his mentor, Chang Che. And it wasn't until Stephen Chow starred in a movie called All for the Winner that stuff kind of changed. And that movie has an interesting history because one of Chow Yun-fat's signature roles in Hong Kong was a movie called God of Gamblers. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want to do the sequel. So the the producer, Eng Si-yoon, who is kind of like the Roger Corman of Hong Kong. Yeah, he's the one who, as some trailers that we saw have put it, created Jackie Chan (laughs) because he produced Snake in the Eagle Shadow. He also launched a lot of other people. Van Damme Mm -hmm. uh, started with him. But Ang Si Yoon had a script to go for a ripoff movie called All for the Winner got Stephen Chow to do it, it became even more popular than God of Gamblers. And what you see in All for the Winner, uh, which is fun, like I got it on DVD as well because it was like the ur-text of Stephen Chow, (laughs) is a takeoff of God of Gamblers that almost makes no sense if you haven't seen God of Gamblers (laughs) because All for the Winner references it over and over again. Like Stephen Chow is trying to imitate Chow Yun-fat from that movie, except the difference here is that Stephen Chow has psychic powers. Uh-huh. But he's also playing one of the kind of stock characters he kept going back to, which is a mainland Chinese bumpkin, huh. who's actually really good at what he does. And this movie was so popular that eventually the All for the Winner series and the God of Gamblers series converged. Which is insane! Because what ended up happening was the director of God of Gamblers, Wang Jing, took Stephen Chow from that movie and put him in God of Gamblers 2 as the same character who met up with a bunch of other characters from the God of Gamblers series. Following All for the Winner, Stephen Chow had a long period of just churning out comedies, 
He uh, made eight films in 1991 starring roles. Th- that's mind-boggling. He worked with, you know, Johnny Toe back when Johnny Toe was just a journeyman mm-hmm. director. Gordon Chan. He worked a lot with Wong Jing, a favorite of yours. Wong Jing is like the schlockmeister of Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, if somebody makes something that's successful, Wong Jing will then rip it off while putting some stars in it like Andy Lau or uh, Jackie Chung. He's most famous for making City Hunter, the Jackie Chan film that Jackie Chan has completely disowned, (laughs) but which is tons of fun. And then making a whole film with a giant fuck you to Jackie Chan called High Risk. And Wong Jing is somebody who is held in very low regard in Hong Kong cinema fan circles, but I know you're a fan. And, oh, I'm a huge fan. And, you know, I enjoy Wong Jing movies too because they're they're wacky. Mm, they're Cheap, dumb. They're, they're dumb, have a lot of shit in them. And it's like, if you like Hong Kong movies, how can you not have some affection for Wong Jing? Because he's so much of what Hong Kong cinema is. And Wong Jing made one of the craziest Stephen Chow films, which is... Tricky Brains, a film where Stephen Chow plays a prank master. He's the world's number one tricks expert. It's kind of like dirty work. (laughs) Kind of, except instead of Norm MacDonald and Artie Lang, it's like Stephen Chow and Tom Cruise. Yeah. (laughs) Because Andy Lau is in the movie. Yeah, so the the plot of the film, which I saw this week on Justin's recommendation, uh, is that uh, Stephen Chow, as this tricks expert, uh, he'll play tricks on anyone, uh, gets hired by corrupt businessman to oust his rival, Andy Lau, Mm -hmm. uh, from the company that he works at, and also to break up Andy Lau's relationship with the fragrant Rosamund Kwan, uh, who he wants to get with. So Stephen Chow poses as Andy Lau's long-lost brother, (laughs) and then he tries to fuck him up and embarrass him through all sorts of wacky shenanigans, like he tries to get him to drink an aphrodisiac cola. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh, Tries to get him to go into the ladies' washroom. uh, Shenanigans. Uh, Or, uh, most famously, he tries to ruin a date for Andy Lau by pretending that he has AIDS. Oh, my God. (laughs) So Wong Jing is the poet of AIDS jokes. Oh, my God. Every Wong Jing movie from this era has extensive use of AIDS jokes. Wong Jing is a very bad man. Oh, he's a very bad. He's sexist, he's racist, uh, he's, you know... Famously um, worked with the triads a lot, and at one point he pissed them off so badly that they knocked all of his teeth out. (laughs) And now, of course, he's, you know, in tight with the uh, People's Republic government. Ugh, God. But, like, you know, after I recommended it to you, it is very difficult movie to get into especially in the first like chunk uh-huh. where you're like all right i don't know if i'm getting all these jokes because one of them just involves a character pretending to have a seizure when a particular <laughs> word is said the stephen chow movies usually have one scene at least one scene where there's like it's almost like a rap like characters will talk to each other in a very heightened stylized rhyming way mm-hmm. and the subtitles just seem like normal dialogue to me and yeah. that's when i know okay this this scene is not for me and you can see in tricky brain steven chow's kind of go-to comedic stylings which is he likes to deadpan a lot of stuff yeah. like he'll talk in a in a straight monotone but then he'll react like Whoa! like a big rubber-faced reaction to something else. This gets back to my question about whether or not Stephen Chow, or why why you find mm-hmm. Stephen Chow funny, or why anyone finds Stephen Chow funny, because I like him. Mm-hmm. I, I love him as a director. I'm, I'm fine with him as an actor, mm-hmm. but 
the fact that he hasn't appeared in any movies recently and he mm. seems to have gone full time behind the scenes doesn't break my heart because he just oh, seems it like it breaks my heart so yeah, much. To, to me, he's he's like kind of an affable guy, mm-hmm. but I don't feel any love for him that I feel for like Jackie or Sammo. It, Stephen Chow has that kind of amazing face that he's like a leading man, right? Yeah, because he's handsome. Yeah. He idolizes Bruce Lee. He wishes he could be a martial arts star, which pops up in all his movies. But at the same time, he just makes fun of himself all the time. Like he's often the butt of the jokes. Mm. And with that comes the fact that all of his movies have the Stephen Chow stamp. No matter what director it is, Stephen Chow has cultivated a brand of comedy that really appeals to me. It's a mixture of big acting, deadpan performance, and most importantly, these crazy visual punchlines. Stephen Chow, as a performer, knows how to play and sell these big visual gags that are everywhere in his pictures. Him as an actor, director, writer, and just artist kind of exemplifies what I love about Hong Kong cinema, which is that it can do anything and it can put it up on screen for the simple use of a laugh. For example, Tricky Brains, which we just talked about, has a climax where Stephen Chow and another tricky master just do pranks at each other that are massive over this mansion just filled with partygoers. And Stephen Chow just knows how to sell that. So it's not just him as a director, but also him as an actor that can pull these things off. Principally in very violent ways. Because <laughs> if there's one thing that you'll see in Stephen Chow films, especially the ones that he co-directs, is the level of brutal violence to oh, the yeah. gags. Yeah. And that's why they're funny. You just watched From Beijing with Love, which is a Stephen Chow kind of parody of James Bond film. This was one of the Stephen Chow movies I saw, you know, 10 or 15 Mm. years ago when I was getting into Hong Kong movies. And I was on this viewing, I expected to love it. I was Mm. a little disappointed by it on this viewing. You love it. Oh, I love that movie so much. I mean, it's fun. I can describe a gag and the people listening won't find it funny. But just imagine how it is on screen where someone is trying to assassinate Stephen Chow. And so she pulls a gun out of his bag, points it at him, fires, and then she gets hit by a bullet in the shoulder. And Stephen Chow gets up and goes, oh, you just used my trick gun. It (laughs) fires backwards instead of forwards. So then he turns around to go do something. The girl points the gun at Stephen Chow again, turns it backwards, fires, and then it hits her in the shoulder again. And Stephen Chow stands up and goes, oh, that's my double trick gun <laughs> that it shoots uh, backwards, then forwards. And she's standing there with giant bullet wounds that are leaking blood. Okay, that's funny. Yes. And it's funny because of how, like, deadpan he yeah. plays it. There are a lot of kind of, like, kind of tired, like, spy spoof games. Mm-hmm. Like, there's the scene where Stephen Chow is showing her all of his gadgets. And one of them is it's like a hairdryer, but it's actually a razor. And yeah. here's a razor and it's actually a hairdryer. And he plays it well. He plays yeah. it totally different. I mean, bad. that's classic, like, get smart bullshit, right? Yeah. But yeah. it's funny. And yeah, it's-, it's fine. I, You know, sorry, I'm underrating the movie a little mm. bit here. I think just because I had such high hopes for it going yeah. in. And it's also brutally violent, which is an, <laughs> something that I, I actually remember catching me off guard when I saw yeah. it the first time and did again this time. I mean, that's something that Chow still goes back to even in his newer movies like the mermaid like Mm -hmm. it's so shockingly violent and i think that ties into the fact that 
he's kind of obsessed with making a movie that's comedic and as well as dramatic. Mm. And that violence is often something that he leans into to try to make things feel more serious. Mm. For example, something like God of Cookery, which you just watched, which is part of, I think, the holy trinity of Chow films, God of Cookery, Shaolin Soccer, Kung Fu Hustle. Yeah. When you mention him, everybody mentions those. And it's definitely in the transition period mm-hmm. for him because you directed me to an article by Grady Hendrix for mm-hmm. Film Comment about the producer Jeff Lau. And Jeff and Grady Hendrix argues that Jeff Lau is the one who changed Stephen Chow. Yeah, he directed All for the Winner, the one that skyrocketed mm-hmm. Stephen Chow to mega popularity. But then after All for the Winner, Stephen Chow churned out all these movies with Wong Jing, all these sort of triad funded mm. movies. Yeah. In fact, fun fact, just to digress, uh, Stephen Chow during the handover tried to emigrate to Canada, but he was not allowed into Canada because of his triad connections. Yeah, he tried twice. Yeah. And both times they turned him away. Which is crazy. And like, Stephen Chow, I, I'm like, I don't know what went into him making all these movies. Mm. Like, obviously... Someone was holding a gun to his back. The, the triads him to? were such a huge part of Hong Kong cinema in the early 90s. I don't think they are so much anymore because Hong Kong cinema just isn't that profitable anymore. And it's mostly mainland Chinese cinema where yeah. it's tough for the triads to get a foothold in that. Even though they did attack Michael Bay when he was on the set for Transformers 4. <laughs> I, in fact, I think in the 90s, one of the only people who was just totally invulnerable from the triads was Jackie Chan because mm. his movies were too expensive and he just had too much institutional protection. Well, don't forget that Jackie Chan was contractually obligated by good friend, good friend, Jimmy Wang Yu in appearing in the Island of Fire movie. That seems to be Jackie Chan's like only triad (laughs) obligation movie from the 90s. (laughs) And so Jeff Lau has directed some of the funniest Stephen Chow films. um, But most famously, he made a picture called A Chinese Odyssey. It's a two-part movie. Yes, it is. So it's like three hours long. And this is the one from 1995, after all those Wong Jing movies that sent Stephen Chow to where he is today, making more well-rounded, more mature movies. And I think that A Chinese Odyssey, which is unfortunately a little bit difficult to get into North America, I think there's a Chinese Blu-ray that was released. Back in the day, I could only get it in a washed-out version with burnt-in subtitles. Mm -hmm. But I would have to say that not only does it capture the Stephen Chow magic that I love so much, but it's his most successful at being a dramatic movie. Mm -hmm. Not gonna lie tears spring from my eyes when I watch the end of that picture. (laughs) And it's actually a classical retelling of a Monkey King story, which they've been mining in China for the last like decade. In fact, one of Stephen Chow's recent movies is that story Journey to the West. Mm -hmm. He did a a big budget mainland comedy based on it. But other than Jeff Lau, there's one other filmmaker that Stephen Chow worked with a lot in the late 90s and kind of defined his style going forward, who was uh, Lik Chi Lee. He's the one that co-directed Shaolin Soccer. He also co-directed From Beijing With Love. He co-directed King of Comedy, which is another Stephen Chow film. And he made God of Cookery with Chow. Uh, And you got a chance to watch God of Cookery this week. Yeah. Another one that I saw, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. I found it thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah. You know, it's got lots of lots of fun stuff in Mm. it. Uh, Stephen Chow plays the self-proclaimed God of Cookery, a uh, master chef in Hong Kong who is very arrogant. And in his arrogance, he lends his name to uh, a franchise of bad restaurants. And he's betrayed by one of his employees who usurps him to become the new God of Cookery. So now humbled on the streets, 
Stephen Chow joins forces with a lowly street vendor named Sister Turkey, played by the great Karen Mock, who has uglified herself in a weird trend for a lot of Stephen Chow films around that period. Yeah, with crazy teeth. And I and by the way, I think Karen Mock is way funnier than Stephen Chow is in this movie. I, I would probably agree. Stephen Chow doesn't have that much to work with in he, this he, film. He's a straight man. So he aligns with her and her triad gang and they market this new product called explosive pissing beef balls (laughs) yeah that's right which rockets him back to the top and then the last act of this movie takes place at the big god of cookery competition uh where stephen chow now humbled now humbled but now back to a higher place yeah that's right now he has gray hair now he's in a higher spiritual place has to engage in a uh, kung fu cookery competition Mm. with his old uh, employee. I think that what made me not like the movie that much when I first saw it, even watching it now, was high expectations. Yeah. When you say like Kung Fu Cookery, you're like, oh boy, that doesn't really happen till the last act. Well, also it's like, yeah, the, the middle section of this movie drags. Yeah. And also you're watching it through the lens of what he would do after this. Like, this movie leads to Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle, and you want it to be as funny as those. And And it's not. this film wasn't as successful when it came out in Hong Kong, I believe. Mm. And I think one of the reasons was that Stephen Chow was tackling his own public persona in the film. (laughs) Because the character, in classic Jackie Chan fashion, is called Stephen Chow, and the God of Cookery is an arrogant egomaniac who thinks he's the best and everybody sucks. Which, if you've read interviews with people that have worked with Stephen Chow, that's how... they all feel about him. Hmm. Stephen Chow is not an easy man to work with. And this has been said over and over again from people like Johnny Toe, who said like, oh, I don't really want to comment on Stephen Chow because (laughs) enough people have attacked him. And even Wong Jing said like, yeah, I don't want to talk about it because he's been, you know, taken down enough. Wong Jing said that. What is the problem with Stephen Chow? Just a giant egomaniac. Hmm. And I feel that he believes that everything that he does is right and that he doesn't let any descending voices around him. And I think that can be seen in the way that his career kind of went after he was not forced to make movies anymore. Because he worked obviously really hard on Kung Fu Hustle, and it came out and it was a huge hit. And now there's this weight of expectation on him. And now movies are coming out from him at a Kubrickian pace. Absolutely. It's like one yeah. every five years. And from what I hear is that he will work on a joke over and over and over and over again, Until it's funny, and he believes it's the best it can be, but what you get is something that's just kind of there. It doesn't have that spark that his other movies have that obviously felt improvised on the day. Yeah, well, the Wong Jing movies have an energy uh, that that is all their own, but what I do know is I think The Mermaid is... A, a very very funny movie it is very funny uh, particularly the scene that i think about all the time is when there's that you, you know the one i'm talking about yeah the, an octopus man an octopus man is posing as a chinese chef and then some other chefs start like knifing at his octopus tentacles and then he has to cook himself for the people <laughs> while in extreme pain yeah to stay undercover and i think that's probably one of the perfect stephen chow gags mm. where like It's someone has to pretend not to do something Mm -hmm. while they're in extreme pain. There's a famous joke in Chinese Odyssey where where Stephen Chow thinks he's invisible. Mm -hmm. 
and where the people he's trying to sneak by keep lighting him on fire in the crotch <laughs> and where his friends keep like stomping at his crotch over and over again until it just gets more and more funny. But you know, these people can call him an egomaniac, but what <laughs> I know is when he took the reins, uh, the movies that he controlled, they're the ones that are the best. They're the most imaginative. You know, something like Kung Fu Hustle. Kung Fu Hustle is like what I want those earlier Chow movies to be. Just <laughs> like an extreme live action cartoon. Yeah, I-, I can understand where you're coming from, but at the same time, I do feel they're almost a little too fabricated Mm. in the way that they play out and his emphasis on like a lot of filmmakers on CGI kind of robs some of the magic of something like a Chinese Odyssey has which is all practical I felt that about Journey to the West Mm -hmm. one of his more recent movies it it kind of evaporated from my mind right after I saw it it's not as funny as you want it to be yeah and the one that he produced was Troy Hark after the sequel Journey to the West The Demon Strike Back is even less funny because like it's so calculated and you're not sure where the jokes are and which is different than his earlier films where I watched them and a lot of scenes will play out and I'll go that is a parody of something that I don't understand (laughs) like a commercial or something but it doesn't matter because they're moving so fast Mm -hmm. I could just move on to the next set piece Uh, I watched one more movie for this podcast uh, his 1999 film King of Comedy Mm -hmm. not to be confused with the Martin Scorsese film this was his attempt to go in an even more mature direction kind of a a a sentimental comedy Mm. drama where he plays an extra in the Hong Kong film industry, a background player who really takes his craft seriously and wants to do serious drama. Mm -hmm. And he even starts a theater troupe so that he can do a classic Chinese play, The Thunderstorm. And uh, he becomes acquainted with a local courtesan played by Cecilia Chung, who wants him to help her act better so that she can be more attractive to potential customers. And it becomes a bit of a romantic drama, but the romantic drama is interesting dispersed throughout by scenes of unspeakably broad comedy. Well, don't forget, good man Jackie Chan shows up in the movie as an extras. Massively over-the-top parodies of Hong Kong cinema, whether it be John Woo or Uh, Bruce Lee. Uh, There is a scene where Stephen Chow fiddles with a small child's penis in (laughs) this movie. So I don't even know. This movie, it's not hard to find this movie, but be be careful because like there is legit child pornography in this movie. You know, I know that you weren't a huge fan of it and King Comedy is actually considered a little bit lesser on the Chow scale. Yeah, I didn't particularly like it either, and I don't know if if I, I just needed to be there in Hong Kong at the time. Mm. None of the emotional beats hit for me it felt like an awkward melding of parts but it also uh, ends with a incredibly brutal crime climax that comes out of nowhere yeah so the whole movie <laughs> love it the movie was just peculiar to me so let's get back to the green hornet which mm. was supposed to be his first american film and it was announced Seth rogan and evan goldberg his writing partner got chow on board he was going to direct the film he was going to co-star as kato mm. and what ended up happening Nothing. According to Seth Rogen on a commentary track, Stephen Chow just stopped returning their calls. Well, it seems like a bad combination because mm-hmm. Seth Rogen's brand of comedy and Stephen Chow's brand of comedy could not be more different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do remember reading an interview with Rogen where he said that Stephen Chow had an idea where 
Kato would insert a microchip into the Green Hornet's head where he would be able to control him. That sounds like a great gag. And frankly, I would have rather seen Stephen Chow's Green Hornet. Yeah, because all of you remember Michelle Gondry's Green Hornet? No, of course you don't. Well, the Green Hornet's another movie that's just like a weird mix of sensibilities. Mm. Uh, Like, they should have just gone all out. With Kevin Smith's Green Hornet, like it was supposed to be. Well, like, they should have just done, like, you know, the the Apatow Green Hornet Mm -hmm. instead of trying to get some arty guy to direct it. Yeah, Um, it was a weird you know, mixture that just didn't pay off at all. So uh, if anybody listening here is like, I don't know, what Stephen Chow film should I watch if I've watched The Holy Trinity already? Well, uh, I have a top 10 list, so get your uh, pen and paper uh, out, and I'm going to say it really fast. So first off, Chinese Odyssey 1 and 2, Jeff Lau's films, probably the greatest all-around Stephen Chow films. Uh, I'm cheating by putting two movies, but they're very similar to each other, from Beijing with Love, which we talked about, and also Forbidden City Cop, where Stephen Chow plays a cop that gets involved with all these flying like swordsman people, but he can't do it, which ends with one of the greatest climaxes in cinema history. Out of the Dark, the ultimate version of violent Stephen Chow, a rare film that he made for the Shaw Brothers uh, that was also directed by Jeff Lau and is a horror comedy where like people get cut in half and they're <laughs> dealing with ghosts and stuff like that. Tricky Brains, which we already mentioned. Love on Delivery, which is probably in my top Stephen Chow movies. It's so funny. I love it so much. And the concept is Stephen Chow saves the girl of his dreams while in a Garfield mask. Oh my God. And she doesn't know who saved her so he has to be this garfield vigilante i'm adding this to my uh letterboxd watch list right now king of comedy which will mentioned god of gambler 3 back to shanghai not to be confused with god of gambler 3 the beginning which is also directed by wang jing but a completely different movie in this one stephen chow goes back in time in while having a psychic fight to Shanghai in, I think, the 30s or the 40s, where he starts a McDonald's and has a musical number about it. Uh, Flirting Scholar, which is a really fun one. I've seen that one. I liked it. Yeah, Magnificent Scoundrels, which Mm -hmm. is a con man comedy starring Stephen Chow, and Royal Tramp, which is a Wuxia parody uh, directed by Wang Jing. from this list, I think you get like a good mix of them all. And a lot of them directed by Lee Chi Lee, the guy who made Chow and Soccer God of Cookery, and then was abandoned by Stephen Chow, which is a thing that like when you talk about Chow as a kind of jackass character, there's another actor he worked with in every movie called In Mantat. He's in Shaolin Soccer. He's in almost every movie that Chow made in the 90s. And then suddenly when Kung Fu Hustle came around... And Mentat said, Chow just didn't call me. He just Aww. didn't ask me to be in it. So, and they haven't worked together since. So, do we have any letters this week? We do have one letter. Um, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Questions, comments, Stephen Chow related inquiries. We will take them. Stephen Chow, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the podcast. <laughs> I actually saw him in an interview, I think it was the 90s, with Jonathan Ross, who did the incredible uh, Strange Film Show. It was a son mm-hmm. of a uh, TV show. And Chow in it is very... Peter Sellers-like, like, you know how they're very deadpan when they talk. Yeah. And at one point, uh, Johnson Ross goes, you must be very popular with the ladies. And Stephen Chow goes, oh, no, no, I'm not not very popular with the ladies. Which I'm like, come on! You're one of the biggest stars in Hong Kong! This you must le- be very popular with the ladies. <laughs> I can just imagine Jonathan Ross saying that. So, this letter is from Kyle Cox. Hashtag Important Cinema Club Nation Plebeian. It goes, finally... I have accomplished the important Cinema Club Nation introduction process by listening to your entire 
podcastography, and I gotta say that I genuinely enjoyed every single episode. Well, thanks. I would not want to spend that much time with myself. <laughs> My name is Kyle Cox, and over the past four months, I've been hiking the Continental Divide Trail. <laughs> as grand and rewarding as this journey has been, it doesn't pair well with my love of all things cinema. However, it does provide me with plenty of free ear time. You two have played a major role in helping me through this arduous adventure and have seriously aided me in reestablishing my excitement and appreciation for all types of movies, not just the schlock hole that I found myself going down. Now I feel like I've traveled the Continental Divide <laughs> with him. From now on, whenever anyone asks, what's the longest trip you've ever made? That's what I'll say. Yeah, because we were right there in his ear, yeah. probably the entire way. He was the third guy in the room with us, you know? <laughs> I've only had the opportunity to begin concocting a list for movies to watch and books to read for when I slink back into the real world. But man, is that list long now with my newly purchased Teddy Bomb Blu-ray at the oh, top of it. Wow. wow. Thank you, Kyle Cox. A man after your own heart. <laughs> I did have the opportunity to catch Yankee Doodle Dandy on TCM in a hotel, the proper viewing place. Fucking hell, man. That goddamn Over There song was stuck in my head for weeks. <laughs> I suppose I'll have to watch Detour or the rest of the ICC Nation will kick me out. <laughs> I'd like to hear if you have any opinions on trailers. The hype, the false promises, the awe-inspiring moments you may have experienced as a kid. I've been avoiding most of them as of late because they can give away too much, but it's hard to deny the excitement that a well-cut, simple trailer can provide. I loved trailers when I was a kid. Oh, me too. I think we've talked about before that like TCM or one of those channels that would play the same five trailers every day. Yeah, oh, it was, yeah, the... Um, the movie network. Yeah, that's right. And so we saw like the trailer for... Bordello of Blood. Bordello of Blood fled with, with <laughs> Stephen Baldwin. I was obsessed with fled. I wrote an <laughs> illustrated short story in class about fled. Because fled looked so grown up. And have I seen the movie? No, I haven't. No, neither have I. The American President was another trailer <laughs> that I saw a lot. Which started uh, Will's love for Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm still up for seeing trailers when I go see a movie. Mm. You know, it's uh, it's kind of fun to see. When you go see a big blockbuster, um, it's kind of fun to see blockbuster trailers. Like when you go to the art house, you're going to get art house trailers. Yeah, and you see you know, like that, that logo come up. I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> but... <laughs> I mouth something to Will and you go like another one of these yeah what I really want is like a trailer for a superhero movie so I can get all the good bits <laughs> I can get like lots of stuff flying around fa oh. you know popular fun shit oh I watch all the trailers that they come out right when they come out yeah. and I have no friends that share that um, like for, with me as far as what I enjoy when I watch them don't give me the whole movie yeah. as in like beat by beat story wise just give me a bunch of abstract images that just look like fun or give me scenes that are not even in the movie just to fuck with me so the best trailer moments of my life were um in 1995 when i went to see free willy 2 a, a trailer for ace ventura when nature calls came on screen. oh my god he's back well because the trailer began with something like africa the last untamed civilization no man would dare traverse africa no man and then the guy takes off his voodoo mask but ace ventura <laughs> and you're like what exactly and my other great trailer moment was seeing the trailer for Godzilla 2000 mm. before X-Men. <laughs> I think one of the trailers that probably blew my mind the most was Power Rangers the movie. Because yeah. when I saw that trailer, I was like, whoa, like they're on the big screen now? And it didn't look like the TV show. It looked bigger. It looked yeah. slicker. Yeah. Mm. So that was kind of like earth shattering for me. But which is funny because the trailers we're talking about are only related to other pop culture that we know. Yeah. Like, it's difficult that a trailer in itself introduces a concept and gets us so jazzed by it well, just from that. If I were to choose the best trailers of all time, mm -hmm. um, 
if if we're going to assume that trailers are an art form. Yeah, and they are. Uh, I think that, so obviously the Citizen Kane trailer is very famous. But Any trailer edited by Joe Dante that has an exploding yeah. helicopter yeah. in it. Um, but also the Pulp Fiction trailer. Mm. Uh, you should go back and look at that trailer because it's like, it's kind of a small masterpiece. It doesn't tell you anything about the plot, but, mm. it, but it shows you so much stimulating stuff and really conveys the, uh, you know, the the feeling of the movie one of my favorite trailers of all time is the extended trailer of cloud atlas the wachowski brothers Mm -hmm. movie that five minute trailer so well edited Mm -hmm. sets up all the pieces so perfectly that it was so disappointing when the movie was emotionally kind of flatline for me. Yeah, terrible film. Oh, also, uh, Albert Brooks has a couple of really good Oh trailers. my god, the uh, real, real life, life trailer yeah. is so good. Yeah. Uh, it's time to pull out your 3D glasses under your seat. <laughs> 3D glasses not included in every yeah. cinema. And uh, the Monty Python and the Holy Grail trailer is pretty funny because it's got like a Japanese narrator. <laughs> I think the thing that I would love for them to bring back in trailers is creating teasers just yeah. for the trailer. Yeah. Like that doesn't involve footage from the movie and they just don't do that anymore or like i just saw the the trailer for the bellboy by jerry lewis which opens with like two minutes of jerry lewis playing like the producer or mm-hmm. playing the director one of the best trailers of all time is the this is spinal tap trailer have oh, you yeah. seen that yeah, one yeah, yeah, where yeah. rob reiner's like i'm editing this is spinal tap but we don't have any footage to show you so here's some footage from a documentary about cheese oh i'm a fan of the trailer for uh well, i can just go on all day yeah. about this, but the, the trailer for the sylvester stallone porn film italian stallion wait how does that go um so this is it was filmed as party at kitty and studs mm-hmm. in the early in the early 70s but then after uh he became famous they re-released it as italian stallion and it starts with this sort of porno personality called gail palmer who was alleged to have directed porn movies in the 70s but she was actually a front for other people mm. um but it opens with her in an editing booth and she goes hi i'm gail palmer and i've just spent uh two weeks in the dark with everybody's biggest fantasy sylvester stallone <laughs> star of Rocky, starring in his first sexually explicit film. Unfortunately, there's no sexually explicit footage that we can show you in a G-rated trailer. And then it shows you just a couple of minutes of footage of Sylvester Stallone like running around Central Park (laughs) in an overcoat. And then it shows you an excerpt from Stallone's Playboy interview where they ask him, what about that porno film you made? And he says, I was desperate. I was sleeping in the Port Authority bus station. You do a lot of weird things when you have to get out of the bus station. That's an amazing trailer. Yeah, it's great. It's on YouTube. You should check it out. Uh, One of the trailers that was the biggest fuck you to an audience was the trailer for the Force uh, entry in the Highlander feature film series, Mm. Highlander Endgame, which was also the film that introduced Donnie Yen to the North American Mm. market, which is that it's filled with footage that was shot for a test reel to raise money for the film. Oh, wow. So characters are creating energy balls and throwing them. Someone gets cut in half and splits into two people. None of that happens in the movie. Star Wars Rogue One has a ton of footage in the trailer that wasn't in the movie because half the movie was reshot. Yeah, once um, the director was fired Mm -hmm. and Tony Gilroy took over uncredited and directed the rest of the picture. Uh, This letter is not done. It just Oh, sorry. I was having so much fun talking, talking about, about trailers. Yeah. yeah. As for future episodes, I love a Charles Banner student Gordon, star director of the Wonderful Ice Cream Suit episode. I think Charles Band would be really interesting to talk about. I don't think he's a very good director, but as a producer, he's been involved in a lot of stuff. I forgot that Stuart Gordon made the Incredible Ice Cream Suit, the mm-hmm. Joe Montagna classic, which I would see the video at Blockbuster and think, who the hell would want to watch this? I put that trailer on so many reels <laughs> because it does that amazing... Edward James Olmos and 
Edward James almost. <laughs> the like two roles. Thing. Yeah. I think Stuart Gordon hasn't made one uninteresting film. I think there's value in every film that he's made. Uh, so he would definitely be someone I would like to talk about. This letter writer also says, also, I'm hoping we'll get a schlocktober this year. Or as we like to call it, shocktober. Well, we will have shocktober. The least listened to string of episodes we've ever had. That amazes me. Yeah, like... We, we thought we were going to get... Like we were selling out to do a horror is, thing. We don't do horror stuff for most of the year. Yeah. So the, we get all out of the way in October. Uh, he, the letter writer continues. Thank you again, guys. This is an epic letter because he did an epic walk. So well, he doesn't okay. have a lot to do on the <laughs> continental divide. So thank you again, guys. You really have renewed my passion for film. Justin, keep making movies. Will, you're great. Now write a fucking book so we can throw money at you. Kyle Cox. P.S. I'll be visiting Toronto for a few days in January. Feel free to recommend some film-related spots. I had the opportunity to visit Suspect a few months before its closure and really loved that place. Wow. Well, it's gone now. That just makes me so sad to think about Suspect. Uh, well, uh, what, if you're a film lover and you're coming to Toronto, what do you want to visit? Uh, go to the Royal Cinema. Hopefully you land where they're doing the Laser of Last Film Society, because I hear that's fun. Yeah. As far as DVDs, go to Bay Street Video. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a huge selection. Are there any like other kind of like weird, interesting film spots in the city? Uh, like they're just like your standard rep houses, you mm. know, at the Review. Yeah. The TIFF the... Bell Light Box. Yeah, I guess you can go visit there. Oh, the Forget About It Supper Club. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> People are like, what is that? You need to be deep uh, Will Sloanophile yeah. to get that joke. As far as like non I'm getting movie related places, I mean, you can go visit the gardens where uh, the Adam McGoyan film. Um, <laughs> Chloe. Was shot. Al- yeah. Allen Gardens. Uh, I was just at Cafe Diplomatico yesterday, uh, where also Chloe was partly shot, and they have a signed Adam McGoyan poster for Chloe there, Mm -hmm. so you can see Adam McGoyan's autograph. (laughs) And if you're a big fan of Scott Pilgrim, all the locations are just all around the city. They're very accessible. Well, no, they've all been bulldozed since that movie. Like, the (laughs) annex is completely different. Uh, Pizza Pizza's still there. Pizza Pizza's still there, but Honest Ed's is not anymore. No, which is sad. Other than that, I can't really think of anything. Jeez, that's bad, isn't it? There there ought to be more things that we can point to in Toronto. I mean, there used to be. There used to be. I mean, there's a Queen video still around. Yeah, probably not for much longer. Well, who who knows? knows? Who knows? Well, thank you very much for your letter, Kyle Cox. Will shall write a book, and then you can buy it. Okay. I may know what it is, but Will just told me not to say. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so what are we doing next week, Will? We're taking it easy next week with Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's TIFF. Uh, I'm going to be getting into screenings and Midnight Madness and working a full-time job. So I'm going to be exhausted. Mm. So I will try to do as little work as possible. So Arnold Schwarzenegger is a fun one. I just want to watch Commando again. Yeah, so we're going to watch Commando, Twins, and what was the other one? Pumping Iron. And Pumping Iron. Twins by the godfather of Toronto, Ivan Reitman. Mm -hmm. The guy who mostly funded the TIFF Bell Lightbox. And gave us uh, Jason Reitman and Catherine Reitman. That's right. So his legacy is secure. Yeah, I mean, Cannibal Girls, Kindergarten Cop. My super (laughs) ex-girlfriend, Evolution. Hey, hey, that was our generation's Ghostbusters, Will. (laughs) Uh, and don't forget, we have a Patreon episode this week, five bucks uh, a month, and you get four episodes. And we talked about Jackass. Jackass the movie. So if you're like, I don't know if I should pay. Guys, I watched Jackass the movie this week for you and talked about it. So check that out. And my name is Justin the Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Da, 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 da. A news report came out recently that the Toronto International Film Festival is hurting a little bit this year. I think the percentage was that ticket sales dropped 
15%, 20%? At the Lightbox, their year-round ticket sales were down 27%. Oh, that's brutal. That hurts. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the article, Cameron Bailey and outgoing president Piers Handling, that was just announced yesterday, I think, uh, talked about how they were trying to focus now less on film per se than in transformative experiences through film. <laughs> no! Uh, Why? To, Why? Because this is going to get the millennials. <laughs> You can read that as, we want to make movies an experience again. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I'd agree with that. Mm -hmm. I think that something that I've not enjoyed too much about The Lightbox is that you go, it's a very cold space. It's not very welcoming. Well, I see the canteen restaurant on the main floor. I see the Luma Lounge on the second floor. I think... (laughs) I sh- I'm not allowed here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This looks like above my pay grade. Uh, there aren't great places to congregate if you're, you know, just a schlub like you and me. Yeah, I mean, there's a pizziolo around the corner, which is where we did go last time. <laughs> yes. Um, but that's pretty much it. it uh, it's not and it's uh, too big. welcoming, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's too big. Like, yeah. you've talked about that you've seen movies in, like, a cavernous theater with you and the other six weirdos who go and see it. Well, like, oftentimes, like, if you see a first-run movie and it has, like, four showtimes a day uh you know you're not gonna pack 500 seats to see the trip to spain mm. four times a day and you know i mean when the light box opened they did do a lot of cool stuff and they still do a lot yeah, of cool stuff they're absolutely. still you know just this year i saw uh le samurai and mm. army of shadows on 35 millimeter mm. you know i mean they do retrospectives and like most cinematechs will do all the movies which is fascinating i just saw point break there yeah you know? I, I got to see sudden death there incredible stuff the Van Damme yeah picture. i was at that screening <laughs> well what a wonderful screening oh, terrific even though they dismissed it at the beginning in the introduction or were you at Year of the Dragon earlier this I year? I was on 70 millimeter. Wonderful. I mean, you went recently to the Metrograph in New York. Yeah, so this I feel like I, I, I got some insight on perhaps what TIFF could be doing better at the Lightbox because at the Metrograph, you know, I've been to the Metrographs, I guess, a few times in the last two years. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't know I don't know about its business. I don't know how well it does all the time. But I know that last time I went this weekend or last weekend, it was quite busy. And for people that don't know what the Metrograph is, it's a cinema that opened in New York that's mostly deals with 35 millimeter prints, kind of long retrospectives or like themed retrospectives mm-hmm. and is run by a handful of people including Eliza Ma, who used to work for TIFF. She was the personal assistant to former Midnight Madness programmer Colin Geddes back in the day. Oh, I did not know that. Yes, and uh, she runs it with a handful of movie lovers, and they do really interesting stuff. But, like, was it well-attended, though? It was well-attended the night I was there, and mm-hmm. that's really all I can speak to. I know that it was very busy. The screening I was at for Eric Romer's uh, The Green Ray was sold out. Wow. It, it was in the smaller theater. Yeah. There, there's a smaller one and a bigger one. And the people who were there were the audience that Tiff wants at the light box. It was 20 something, early 30s, very hipsterish looking people. Well, if I made like a guess of who Tiff kind of tried to go for the last few years, it was obviously rich people, like yeah. patrons, right? Yeah. And you want to make going out to the movie something fancy that feels different. I mean, Cineplex has been trying to do that with like VIP mm-hmm. rooms, stuff like that. But the truth is, those people will go out and see two to three movies a year out. Well, you know, Pierce Handling had that great quote in the Toronto Star article where he said something like, people complain that the tickets for the festival are $28, but it's still a good entertainment dollar when you compare it to a Lady Gaga concert or an opera. Yeah, but it's not a concert or something you see live. It's a movie. Yeah. Oftentimes the festival appeals to like... How much do bananas cost now? $10? (laughs) Oftentimes the the festival appeals to like rich people who want to see a celebrity. Mm. But, but, and that's great for 
a couple of galas, but for the rest of the movies, yeah, you know. it's difficult. So, but at the Metrograph, I remember you talking about also that it felt welcoming, right? Well, it has an interesting aesthetic uh, because it looks kind of upscale. It looks kind of classy. I hate that word classy, mm-hmm. but it, but it has all this kind of like antique looking furniture around and has an elegant looking restaurant and you know a a very tasteful looking snack bar with gourmet snacks and stuff um how much are tickets uh 14 bucks or or 15 you know the expensive i know standard going rate for like our our 35 millimeter rep screening Mm -hmm. um it's in like an old warehouse in chinatown not a particularly good section of chinatown either and it has it even though it has this kind of upscale looking furniture, it's it's like furniture from a lot of different vintages that's kind of thrown together. And it has this shabby chic look that makes it sort of welcoming, that makes it seem accessible for young hipster types who want to feel upscale, but mm. don't necessarily have the money to be upscale. <laughs> that's an interesting distinction between who their audience should be. Not the actual rich people, mm. but more poor people who want to feel rich. Yeah. Because they will give you money. Yeah. Like Tiff... As, like you you're in the lobby and you feel like if you sit anywhere for too long someone will be like you gotta leave man yeah yeah <laughs> so what would you s- suggest to somewhere like the light box to do differently to get more people to come well i don't know what you do with the architecture of the light box uh, there's nothing point. much you can do with um, that. but it would be nice if the luma lounge for instance could be feel more like a bar mm-hmm. it can feel more like a gathering place where people could go after the movie because what it looks like right now is a place that people who aren't going to the movies go to have a drink and i mean i would say something that stopped me too is that like if tiff discounted rep screenings after a certain time or something like that i would be more tempted to go see movies well and also if it were if it were a dcp of a rep screening like if i'll pay 15 bucks for a 35 millimeter print but am i gonna pay 15 bucks to see you know heaven's gate Mm. on a blu-ray the thing about the light box as well is there's not much of an authorial voice in what's programmed it's very true and i feel like if there was more of that then you feel like oh i may not know this movie but i will go see it because i've liked other films that this person has programmed well at the royal and i mean you know the royal probably runs on a loss so i don't know how how perfect an example it is but what i do know is that there is a consistent audience that goes to the royal and i will often go to the royal because you and peter have program something mm-hmm. or because uh, brendan ross has programmed something in the neon dream series like it has that personal touch mm-hmm. that and and i often see the same people going there over and over and over again yeah. because they trust these programs mm-hmm. and also because the royal cultivates like a community atmosphere and it cultivates the sense where like you we can hang out in the lobby afterwards yeah, and talk gonna, about the movie you're gonna see your friends then you can go to the monarch tavern around the corner yeah. and the, the the screening will have this kind of like people will get up and introduce the movie beforehand yeah it feels like you're involved in what's going on and the authorial voice of tiff is the institutional voice mm-hmm. and the problem with that is it's an institutional voice mm. and i i don't think you're going to get millennials by pandering to millennials what it, what <laughs> you what? mean i mean i knew you were in the front row for the space jam live read will <laughs> <laughs> well, but like at uh, when I see you, for example, program something at the Royal, I know that like you're enthusiastic about mm. it and you're going to share it to me. But when I sense that like Piers Handling is putting something on because, oh, this is what the millennials like. Uh, let's put a gif of Anna Karina on on Twitter and say, Godard is Bay, come see Band of Outsiders. Uh, you know, like I, I can smell bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, give me a job, Tiff. <laughs> you want a job? <laughs> I do. <laughs> As the guy who fixes it. 
wow. Will Sloan's going to come in with no programming experience at all. Did you hear all these ideas, too? Yeah. I mean, I have them, too. You know who's replacing Pierce Handling? Justin DeClue and Will Sloan, two white guys. And we'll we'll do live Important Cinema Club podcast. That's going to get the millennials in. (laughs) Yeah, they love this shit. The Toronto National Film Festival is arriving. You excited, Will? I'm going to see a few movies, so, you you know. I mean, I'm as excited as I can be for a festival where the tickets are $28. Oh my God, it's so expensive. (laughs) So, I don't know. Uh, But you know what? If I haven't been hired for a job by TIFF at this point, I probably never will. So I've interviewed a TIFF for a job. Oh, yeah? Uh, I did not get it. Yeah, I did. A, I did an interview. <laughs> we both did. <laughs> so then at this point, the TIFF representative listening to this is like, wow, they just have sour grapes now, don't they? Or they can listen to the advice we're giving and say, hey, we want you guys to be on the TIFF podcast network. 